tonight. Come on and have a seat and we will get started. You know, there are times uh, in our Christian walk where sometimes we can be a little discouraged at just the sheer humanity of our lives, the imperfections of it and, and all that. We study the Bible and we look at the patriarchs and the, and the heroes of the faith and all that and and we can, we can feel really deficient. But I have to say, this chapter, chapter 30 of Genesis, is just a classic case of how a holy God can affect his purpose in the midst of the lives of people whose lives are an utter mess, who are doing things that are so wrong, their motivations are so misplaced and and yet God sails through that and, and brings about his will in spite of the foibles and the failings of human beings. And nothing portrays that quite like this chapter does because when we concluded chapter 29 in our last meeting together, I believe it was, was October the 5th uh, before we left the country, um, we saw at the very end of chapter 29 the birth of the first four children that would become the, the 12 patriarchs. So, so we saw the birth of, um, of, of Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah, all coming from Leah, um, the unfavored wife of Jacob. And this is the other thing. I mean, just the way this family, Jacob's family, is constructed with two sisters, uh, Jacob, tricked into marrying the older sister when it was the younger sister that he had fallen in love with and it asked for her hand in marriage. And Laban, the father, uh, pulls the old switcheroo on the wedding night. He ends up being married to Leah instead of Rachel. You know, the classic line, in the morning, it was Leah. <laughs> and, uh, and then he has to work another seven years for Rachel and um, and, and so now you've got two sisters who are at each other's throat. This is why later on in, uh, in the uh, Mosaic Law, uh, it, it's clearly stated that um, you're not to marry sisters. Um, so we'll see all this unfolding here, and it's, it's really troubling. So as we progress in now chapter 30, we're going to see the, the circumstances surrounding the birth of the next eight sons. Uh, we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 30. Now when Rachel, this is now, Rachel is the, the, the younger of the two wives, the younger of the two sisters, the one that Jacob originally wanted to marry, and she has yet to have a child. Now her, her older sister, the unfavored wife, has pushed out four children, and Rachel is feeling really deficient here. So we read, now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. And of course, we know that at that period of time and in that culture, um, bearing sons was the highest calling a woman could have. I know it sounds very uh, politically incorrect in our day. But um, you have to understand in those days, having sons and, and frankly having children uh, was not only your workforce, but it was also your retirement plan. So kids were very good to have in those days. Uh, I, I personally think it's still that way, but many people in our society seem to disagree with that. Um, but Rachel envied her sister, said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. 
And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now, here, uh, a couple of things going on. First of all, we see here that um, there's envy between the two sisters. And this is something that is, is one of the worst sins that we can engender because it affects so much of the rest of the way we deal with other people. If we're envious of somebody, uh, then we hold them in, in uh, ill regard and, and perhaps we do other things uh, towards them that bring us into further sin. Um, coveting is, is a sin that the Lord warns about. Um, you know, even in uh, John's gospel, in the 21st chapter of John's gospel, when Jesus intimates to Peter you know, that passage in, in chapter 21 where he says that right now you, you gird yourself up and you go where you want to go, but the day will come when uh, you'll stretch out your arms and be taken to a place you don't want to go. And of course, Jesus was, was kind of foretelling Peter's death by crucifixion at the end of his life. And Peter, then he looks behind, he sees John the apostle walking behind and he asks the Lord more or less, what about this guy? What's, what's, his, what's his deal, you know? And the Lord says, what's it to you if I allow him to tarry until I return? Um, basically, it's none of your business, Peter. And I think whenever we get into a position where we focus ourselves on what the Lord is doing in the life of somebody else, uh, we, we err. And we put ourselves in a position for all kinds of trouble, not the least of which is, we're in a position to miss what the Lord is actually doing in our lives because God knows our hearts and he knows our future like no one else. And so sometimes the very deprivation that we are experiencing uh, and we look at that and we look at somebody else who might be prospering, we think we're disadvantaged when in fact uh, in the plans of the Lord we're actually being advantaged because God's plan for our lives is different than the plans for others. And so... Rachel's eyes are on her daughter, her, her sister Leah, and, and Leah seems to have this cornucopia of sons coming forth from her, um, and yet Rachel's womb is closed. And in frustration, she expresses this to her husband, and her husband um, didn't give her uh, what you'd call a diplomatic answer. He, di he didn't give her a tender answer. You would, you would have hoped that he would have had empathy for a woman who is desperately wanting to fulfill her promise as a wife and give her, her husband sons. And he responds to her in anger. Um, the one thing about his response, though, is something that indicates uh, correct theology, which is to say that really only the Lord controls the fruitfulness of the womb. Um, you see in many different instances in the Bible uh, where a woman is withheld from having a child. I mean, Sarah being one of the best examples, but also Hannah, um, the, the mother of Samuel, that she desperately wanted a child. She desperately wanted a child. And then finally, the Lord answers her prayer. And I think the Lord's, read, the Lord's delay and answering her prayer, or at least granting her that child, was what put her in a position where she would be so thankful 
that she would give this child back to the Lord and that he would become the prophet Samuel and he would become uh, one of the great judges of God's people, Israel. And so again, this is one of those instances where God's withholding a blessing or, or metting out a blessing in his timing. As hard as it can be for us to, to trust, you got to just trust that the Lord's plan is perfect. And so he says, you know, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? By the way, we might also consider that because Rachel was the wife, the only wife really that Jacob ever wanted, we, we, could, we could probably safely assume that he spends every night sleeping with her. The only time he's, he's going into Leah is probably for the, for the purpose of procreation, but it wasn't that he was at her side all the time. He was probably at Leah's or at Rachel's side all the time. He probably had more sexual intimacy with Rachel than he ever did with Leah. It's just that in the Lord's providence, her womb was closed and Leah's was not. Verse three, so she said, here is my maid Bilhah, Go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have a child by her. Now, this is precisely the same plan, the same process that, uh, that we saw Sarah do when she got impatient with the, with the promise of God that between Abraham and Sarah, they would author the, the child of promise. And so Sarah said something similar in terms of having a child on the knees or having Hagar issue forth a child on her knees. And there's some dispute or some discussion, some scholarly um, uh, work on whether what's described here is a literal uh, process or whether it's a figurative one. When she says she will bear, Bilhah will bear a child on my knees. Um, there's, there's some historic research that indicates that this was actually something that was done that both in the term in the process of insemination and in the process of actually giving birth the surrogate mother which would usually be a slave owned by the woman who's barren would literally be on the lap of of the wife the true wife when when her husband has intimacy with that lady and then when the baby is born that somehow um the the wife who's not able to have children would, would be involved in a, in a very close way. Um, and, and from what I saw in, in some of the commentaries, generally thought that, no, this was a literal description of, of what was done here. And it was a way that um, the barren wife could literally be involved in the process of bringing this child into the world. And in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of society, that child born by her handmaid was her child. Yeah, legally, it was her child. That child could be in the line of inheritance. Uh, there was no thought that the, that the slave that bore that child had any parental rights to that, that kid whatsoever. Uh, something obviously very, uh, very different from what we know of in our world. And uh, so she gave, verse 4, she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Now, we, 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 could, we could lawyer this passage and say, God, how could you assemble what will become the patriarchs, the heads of the 12, 12 tribes, through this kind of sinful mess? Because here is Jacob going into women that are not his wife. Um, you've got all this striving between the two sisters. 
Uh, you know, back in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord stated the underlying principle, one man, one woman, they come together, they become one flesh. And from that unity, that dual unity that comes together, uh, children are authored. And of course, what we see here is a complete, a complete mess made of that ultimate plan. And, and you see the kind of strife that's building in this, this family. And this family would go on for generations having an awful lot of strife in the midst of it and, and treachery and all that kind of stuff. And you say, God, how can you work in the midst of that? How can you take the, the fruit of those kind of uh, dysfunctional relationships and bring to pass what would ultimately become the foundational pillars of God's chosen people, Israel? And again, we have to understand that God did not choose Israel because they were, uh, uh, you know, head and shoulders above other nations in terms of their, their moral rectitude or their, their goodness or their holiness. He chose them because he chose to. And very often the things that the Lord does with people in our world and people that he uses to affect great things for the Lord he doesn't necessarily choose them because they're perfect people. And we know that there aren't any perfect people. Um, and so uh, we have to understand and never lose sight of the sovereignty of God working in the midst of the affairs of human beings, which oftentimes, and most especially in this chapter, very messy. And so Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case. And he has heard, also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Dan means justice. And, uh, and so um, there, there is the first son authored in the name of Rachel, even though it did not come through her body. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. And indeed, I have prevailed. Can you see what's going on here? I mean, this, this baby war is, there's more attention paid by these two women to who's ahead in the baby derby than the fact that they're bringing children into the world that are going to be part of this family. Um, and Rachel says, with great wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Neftali. Wrestling it means my wrestling is, is what that name means. So, <laughs> so then we get to, uh, we get to uh, verse 9 and Leah. Now she's looking across the, uh, the yard because they probably had different separate tents. And Leah saw that she had stopped bearing. So she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. By the way, I'm, I'm just finding it amazing that Jacob's agreeing to all this. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's hard enough to please one wife, but four? I mean, come on. Um, and Leah's maid, Zilpah, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. Uh, because by now, this is like the, you know, the, the fifth child that's coming in the name of Leah. So she called his name Gad, which means troop or great fortune. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher, which means happy. And then we come into verse 14, and we read that Reuben went in the days of wheat, 
of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now you'd say, okay, what's the big deal with mandrakes? Well, mandrakes is actually a weed. It, it, it grew at that time. It would be found very often in wheat fields. And, um, and it tells us there that this, this event happened in the days of the wheat harvest, which in Israel of that time would be around May-June time frame. And they would find these mandrakes in the field. And mandrakes kind of have a nice little cluster of flowers. And then as the plant matures, they produce these, these little fruits. They, they, it's actually the Hebrew name for mandrakes translates love apple. And uh, these little fruits that some people like to eat, and I think they're still used in herbal medicine, um, they, they were believed to be an aphrodisiac. They were, they were something that... Uh, promoted virility and, and uh, made people amorous, and, uh, or at least made men amorous. And so uh, the fact that Reuben went out in the field and found them for his mother Leah immediately catches Rachel's attention because she's saying, hey, I need some of that. And, uh, <laughs> and she proposes this to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, and this is now Leah speaking, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Now, the reason why Leah could say that is because Leah was the first one that married Jacob. So in her mind, Jacob is her husband. And she would probably be even more inclined to believe that because, hey, I'm the wife who actually gave him sons. Okay, I didn't rely on uh, secondhand help here. Um, so she's saying, why... Why would I do that? Is it a small matter that you take, you've taken away my husband? Probably another dig at the fact that Jacob probably spends most nights with Rachel, not with Leah. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. So Rachel, in that statement, is basically consigned to the fact that, or resigned to the fact that um, once Jacob knows that she that Leah has these mandrakes, he's going to be interested in sleeping with her because, again, that particular plant was considered a sexual stimulant. And, um, and so she's saying, well, you're, you're going you're gonna to buy your way into my husband sleeping with you tonight. And when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have surely hired you. See, this is another indication that, that Jacob spends his nights with, with Rachel, not with Leah. And so the fact, she, guess what I got? You know, she's probably out in the field saying, look what I have. You know, uh, you must come into me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, which means reward. Now, again, you can, you can see the motivation in the way in which these ladies are uh, approaching procreation here. And, uh, and there's not a lot of good that you can draw out of that in terms of the way they're approaching this. But again, God is working in the midst of that. He is blessing 
these women with children, or he will in the case of Rachel very soon here. Um, and, and you might say, well, goodness, uh, Rachel is the one that, that Jacob initially loved, and ultimately she's only going to have two children authored through her body, whereas Leah is going to have, you know, six. And, and you'd say, where's the fairness in that? But again, the Lord's the, the Lord doesn't always go with the human convention. Like ultimately, the highway of the seed is going to be through Judah, who is a son of Leah, not Rachel, the one that, that Jacob had gone in search of and, and saw her and he wept when he met her and he kissed her on the cheek and he went to her horrible father's house and ended up working for seven years just to win her only to find out that in the morning it was Leah and had to work another seven. I mean, you, you could look at all that and you say, God, how could you write the story that way? You know, Rachel was the one and yet the Lord's plan is, is different and, and better, frankly. And so Leah, again, bore a, Jacob a sixth son, and Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon, which means dwelling. And afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now, in the case of the sons, we see uh, a little story behind the name, but we don't see that with Dinah, and apparently there was nothing super significant about Dinah, the advent of Dinah's birth. She will become significant in a few chapters hence, and that's why she's named here, because we'll, we'll find out, I think, around about chapter 37. Uh, Jacob and his wives had other daughters. Dinah wasn't the only daughter. She's the only one mentioned because she's going to be significant uh, as we move on in the narrative. But... Um, that pretty much brings to a close the children that will be coming through Leah. And then we see in verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another. And Joseph, again, translation there. May the Lord add. You know, she, she has this son, Joseph. And in her mind, she says, ah, good. You know, the floodgates have now opened. Many more will be coming is kind of the sense you get from her. The Lord shall add to me another son. Of course, that happens to be prophetic because we know that ultimately that's exactly what will happen. Um, but we see here God's sovereignty over her womb grants her this son, and we, we know, or we will soon learn, that Joseph becomes highly significant in the highway of the seed because he actually preserves the, the family of Jacob, Israel, if you will, and uh, we'll see how that unfolds in, in a few chapters. Um, so now, we, the, the scene changes here, and... Um, and we see that Jacob's agreement with Laban is now brought back into sharp focus. And we read in verse 25, it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Now, when all is said and done, Jacob will have served Laban 20 years. 
And by this time, he's served him at least 14 of those 20 years. And so, you know, in Jacob's mind, his country is still the land of Canaan. That's where he belongs. He's been on this pretty long sojourn because he is... He, is in, he was in pursuit of a wife, and he was, uh, if you'll recall, he was sent in that direction towards Laban because his parents said, you do not want to marry any of the women, the indigenous women of Canaan. Uh, you, you don't want to intermarry with that. They, those are pagan people who, who um, worship false gods in the most horrible way. And so he finds himself there with Laban because of obedience to his parents, but now it's been at least 14 years by this point. And so it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go for you know my service which I have done for you. So Jacob is is making a reasonable plea here. He's saying, look, I've been faithful to, to work off the dowry for both of your daughters I have prospered you. My employment has prospered you, Laban. You were a modest, you know, guy when I came to you, and and, um, now you're doing quite well. And, of course, Laban knows this, so he says in verse 27, Laban said to him, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Now, that word translated experience really uh, connotes more the idea of divination, which is to say that um, Laban was somebody who practiced the occultic arts, and through divination, he was able to determine that the God of, of Jacob, who we can assume Laban didn't worship, but yet respected because he sees God's hand on Jacob and how in in Jacob's employment with Laban, Laban has been benefited greatly. It seems that whatever Jacob puts his hand to prospers. And this is is something uh, we have to consider again, is that sometimes the best witness we can give to people who do not share our faith is our lifestyle witness. That is to say... Um, far from the attitude that sometimes Christians will take where they'll say, well, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm just passing through. I just have a job so I can pay the bills. And they don't really necessarily um, throw their heart and soul into their jobs because it's just a job. And really, I'm on my way to heaven and all that. I I think they miss a real opportunity there. I I think far from uh, a Christian being a marginal employee, we should be an exemplary employee. Because it shows that we're people of integrity. It shows that uh, when we take on a commitment, uh, we desire to do it to our fullest. As Paul the Apostle would describe it, we do everything as under the Lord. So in our work, let's say you're an accountant or a carpenter, you do your work as, as a worship, an act of worship to the Lord. That because you are God's child, you do things with excellence because you want people to see that, the, that you are a vessel, you're an earthen vessel, and, and that no one will ever question, but that the power, the excellency of the power that's contained therein is of God and not of you. 
And so you, you live out your testimony in front of people and they want to know, why are you like that? Why are you like that? Why, you know, this, this company is so unfair and they're such jerks and this and that, and yet you do such a great job for them. Why don't you just blow it off like the rest of us? You say, well, no, I've made a commitment. Um, I have an arrangement with this company. I work these hours to do this job and they pay me money. They've been paying me my money. I'm going to do a great job for them. And that's, that's a testimony that very often that opens doors for us to then get to the real truth of the word of God because people just want to know. And before you know it, they, they come into your, your circle of, of, of confidence and, and because they know that you're an upstanding person, maybe when they have a crisis going on in their life, they come and they say, hey, can I share this with you? And, and before you know it, you know, you're, you're helping them. And before you know it, you have a door that's open that you can share the gospel with. And, and so uh, a long way around of saying that Laban knows there's something about this guy. Uh, there's something about this guy, Jacob, uh, the God of Jacob through the divination. We don't know exactly what, what Laban did to discern this. Um, but again, that, that word that's, that's translated experience, kind of an unfortunate translation. It really uh, speaks more towards uh, some kind of supernatural divination or determination of what, what was uh, blessing Jacob. And, and, you know, he terms it the God of Jacob. And then he said, name me your wages and I will give it. So Jacob said to him, you know how I have served you and how your livestock have been with me. For what you had before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming, and now when I shall also and now uh, when shall I also provide for my own house? So he's saying, "Look, I've I've done great things for you, but now it comes the time. I've got two wives, two concubines, a whole lot of kids. I got eleven kids right now. It's about time I start to do for me." And, uh, and so he said, what shall I give you? So, so Laban says, okay, um, what do I need to give you as wages? And Jacob said, much to Laban's surprise, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. So Jacob's got a proposal. It doesn't require any kind of down payment. All it requires is that Laban would agree to this proposal that Jacob is about to un, uh, unfurl here. He says, let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. Now, you got to know that uh, livestock there, sheep, goats, they tend to be uh, black or brown. In fact, when we were there, in fact, when we were in Petra, you saw some of these goats all over the place and they were black. Uh, to, to have a speckled goat or sheep was, was rare. And so automatically, uh, Jacob is saying, I'll take the minority uh, animals that are in the flock right now. And he says, so my righteousness will answer for me in time to come when the subject of my wages comes before you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it, if it is with me. So there's going to be a division of the herd here. And the minority, the speckled ones, are going to be what is considered Jacob's. 
And he's saying, and if any time, if you look at the animals that are mine and they are something other than what I've just described, then you, you, you could rightly accuse me of stealing from your part of the flock. And, uh, and Laban, Laban's happy with this deal. Oh, that it were according to your word. Because he's saying, I don't have to pay anything up front. Um, he is going to bank his fortunes on the minority of the herd, the ones that are not likely to come about. And so he, Laban's feeling pretty good about this deal. It seems like he's got the advantage here. So uh, he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hands of his sons. So, of course, by this time, Jacob's got a bunch of sons. He takes the bits that are going to be his. He says, take these animals three days hence from here. Don't want there to be any chance that uh, there's a mixture of the herds. And, of course, any of the speckled ones that come along afterwards are going to be Jacob's. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So now Jacob is tending Laban's flocks, and of course any speckled ones that are going to come along are going to be his. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and the chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, and exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, so that they, sh they should conceive when they came to drink. Now, <laughs> this is one of those places where I get a lot of questions. And people want to know, okay, what is the secret of those rods? How do rods that have been having the bark stripped off uh, produce this, this urge? on the part of livestock to procreate and, uh, and, and not only to procreate, but to procreate speckled animals. And the answer, the, 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 the researched, reasoned answer is nobody knows. In fact, it, it may not have been a, a real thing at all, but somehow Jacob understood the concepts of selective breeding. And, and the Lord, in wanting to honor Jacob, is working within this. And, and I, I can't tell you that if you wanted to breed sheep, you could go home and do just what Jacob did and get the same result. Because there's, there's no scientific explanation that I've ever seen or anyone's proposed. Um, it's one of those things where, wow, that's interesting. I wonder how that worked. And, and that's, that's pretty much the most you can get out of that. But by virtue of doing this, we read there in verse 39, the flocks conceived before the rods and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Uh, somehow this worked. And, and, uh, and of course, Jacob seemed to be very confident in this process because we don't get any narrative that he experimented with other ways of bringing about spotted, streaked, and speckled uh, animals. Um, and again... Because the Lord had promised already um, that, that, uh, that Jacob would be prospered in the, um, in the process of the Lord working in his life. I think that we saw this in, in Genesis 28. Let's see if I'm right here. Genesis 28, uh, verses 13 through 15, 
We saw there, behold, the Lord stood above and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in your seed, all families of the earth shall be blessed. He's basically repeating or extending the initial promise that God had given Abraham. This particular episode here of Jacob needing to get his, his prosperity and his posterity from, from Laban and then get back into the land. This is a step in that. So you could maybe view the Lord as saying, okay, I'm going to prosper Jacob in this little transaction so that he's going to make a clean break with, with uh, some wealth here. And we read in verse 40, Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face towards the street and all the brown in the flock of Laban. But he put his own flocks by themselves and not, did not put them with Laban's flock. And it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived, that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. Again, we see this, this um, particular method that Jacob is employing here. Uh, don't really know, nor do I think anyone else really knows exactly how that worked. Um, but it seems to have produced results. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So as Jacob sees what animals are coming up to water, and if they look scrawny or scruffy, he didn't put the rods in the troughs. Um, they didn't get the uh, special sauce, so to speak. And, uh, and the feebler ones remained with Laban, and the stronger ones came over to Jacob. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, camels and donkeys. So what we see from the result of, of Jacob being in the midst of Laban, being uh, hoodwinked, hoodwinked by Laban, ending up with two wives and two maidservants, 11 children, the Lord is now in the Lord's timing. It's time to start moving Jacob back to the land. And, um, and, I, and I believe a, a critical stage or step in that is that he would prosper in the midst of this bargain that he made with, um, with Laban. I think one of the things that we have to take away from this particular chapter is something that Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And, and this chapter obviously illustrates that idea very well, because we constantly are seeing things coming to pass in this chapter that we say, no, Lord, that's not the way it's supposed to go. Um, you know, Rachel's supposed to be the one that's the hero of the female side of this story, and yet she's not. Um, and I think the lesson there in, in Isaiah 55 is something we do well to keep in mind as we approach another election cycle because there are a lot of critical issues that hang in the balance in our nation that will be influenced strongly one way or the other depending on how various elections come out. And, and we can sometimes put so much, um, so much concern on the outcome of these things thinking that if it goes one way, hooray, we're saved. And if it goes another way, it's like all is lost, we're doomed. And, and we, we cannot think that way. 
um, the Lord is going to work in the midst of the mess that is our current situation. Um, the Lord's plan cannot be altered, cannot be foiled, uh, cannot uh, be stopped. And the way in which the Lord will bring it about, much the way the Lord has bringing about the formation of the 12 pillars that become the nation Israel, it's done in the midst of a lot of chaos, a lot of bad motives, a lot of bad actions. And yet the Lord comes out on the other side with exactly what he had intended. And I, I really keep reminding myself of that with what we see going on in the country. Um, that as much as we see rapid erosion of societal norms and, and things that were firmly established by the Judeo-Christian ethic and meant a lot to a lot of us in the country, and now we see those things kind of um, being challenged and in some cases literally trashed. Uh, we think that all is lost. We think that um, the things that are ahead of us are, are undoing all the good that we, we saw in our world. And, and it, it isn't that. I mean, it's going to look like that in the immediate time, or it could look like that in the immediate future. But we know the end of the book, right? We've read the end of the book. We win. Um, we've already won in a real sense. How we get from where we are today to where the Bible tells us we will ultimately be with the Lord, first of all, with the Lord taking us up from the earth in the rapture and then returning to the earth with us. How we get from here to there, we don't know. I mean, we can surmise, we can, we can look at the headlines and we, could, we can make conjectures about how the pieces are all going to fall into place, but we don't know. What we do know is what Isaiah 55 tells us is his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, his ways are higher than our ways. And so the, th the things that we might see in the coming days might just literally take our breath away. We might just see things that we would have. I mean, I, I already have seen things that I never thought could happen in my lifetime. I, I never thought, for example, that that women's sports would be turned on its ear because now it's acceptable for men to play in women's sports. And I mean, after all of the fighting, the battles for ladies to establish legitimacy of women's sports, both on the professional level of getting paid the same amount of money. I mean, in some sports like tennis, for example, they draw as big a crowd as the men do. And, and it's only been recently that they finally won the right to have purses that, that are commensurate with what the men get. Uh, same in the college athletic space, all the, the different uh, titles of the Civil Rights Act and all that, that that have guaranteed these freedoms. And now they're all becoming undone uh, because we've gotten into another whole chapter of madness. Th these are things you never thought would happen. Uh, and we're going to see more of that. And we just need to stay encouraged. We need to, we need to feel confident that that just as god was in control of this mess that we just went through he's in control of the mess we're in right now and and he will he will as he always does prevail and the outcome will be exactly what he intended and god god's plans for our lives are for our good in his glory even when it doesn't look like that so with that let's close on a word of prayer and we will go home Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your greatness, your graciousness, 
your mercy, your great care for us, Lord, the plans that you've made for our lives, the patience you have with us when we are unfaithful because you're always faithful. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, as we, as we move into a period of time that is obviously going to be um, trying times, that we would continue to have the confidence, Lord, that you are in control, that your plans are perfect, that you work in the midst of imperfect people. And Lord, that we can trust the outcome, whatever it looks like in the immediate future. And so, Lord, thank you, God, for fortifying us through these accounts that your Holy Spirit, through his excellent editing, made sure would be preserved for centuries that we might be able to read of these things now and learn of them, Lord. They are examples from which we can draw comfort in our own lives, Lord. Thank you for meeting us here tonight, Jesus. We pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.